Welcome to the Intelligence for Your Life podcast. I'm John Tesh. And today, we're going to take an incredible trip inside American history and give you some powerful talking points for your next dinner party because when we're done, you're going to be an expert on the genius of Benjamin Franklin with help from the amazing biography by Walter Isaacson and the expert storytelling abilities of our friend, historian, and educator, Bill Leon. But first... Ben Franklin, I think, would have loved to invent the Dolby Voice and the Dolby Conference phone. Today's offices need workspaces where small teams can collaborate. It's what we do with our radio show staff, and there's a new name for it. It's called the Huddle Room, you know, small conference areas where you have your meetings and use video conferencing. The problem is that the audio on these video conferences is usually terrible, which is why we use Dolby Voice and the Dolby Conference phone. You can't believe how clear and crisp the audio is. So it makes our meetings so much quicker and easy to follow. Saves a lot of time. Dolby Voice and the Dolby Conference phone allows everybody to be heard. It makes meetings easier to participate in. And Dolby Voice and the Dolby Conference phone, they're now integrated with leading video conference solutions. So I want you to do this. Visit Dolby.com Tesh and you can try Dolby Voice demo today. I want you to know also that support for today's show comes from Shutterstock. I'm sure you know of Shutterstock as a home to royalty-free photos, but they offer much, much more. You can kickstart your next interactive project with video clips or music tracks from their collection. All of your creative needs serve to you in one place, and I'm sure you've seen their incredible footage and images all over our Intelligence for Your Life television show. So take advantage today of a 20% discount the company is offering for a limited time at Shutterstock.com slash Tesh. That's Shutterstock.com slash Tesh. Now, Bill Leon is an adjunct professor of education at Manhattanville College. Bill also teaches social studies to special needs students in the 11th and 12th grades. So his ability to communicate the events of history, they're unique and incredibly effective. And what you're about to experience is a painless way to get an A on that Ben Franklin paper you never turned in. So please enjoy as we take a step inside the genius of Ben Franklin with Professor Bill Leon. So, Bill, I've always been uh, fascinated by uh, and with uh, Benjamin Franklin. So when I told you that I was uh, I was reading the Walter Isaacson book and you said, oh, I just right. I, I just finished that book. But it's I think the reason I was interested in uh, Mr. Franklin was because of seeing Hamilton like eight or nine times. Right. And I'm thinking, wow, what an interesting bunch of bunch of folks. But um, I didn't I guess I, I, I learned this in high school, but I guess I didn't realize that that Franklin was. A scientist, inventor, writer, and diplomat, all all in one, and uh, and really really shaped a lot of the stuff that we do today. Oh, absolutely, and 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 so uh, a person so much more ahead of his time. I have to say, I read the book as I as you just said recently, but I I acquired the book as I often do. People give me books all the time, and I got in that book. And it sat on the shelf forever. Right. And I thought, well, what else is there to say about Benjamin Franklin? I've read a few things about him already. And, and one day, just before we got on a plane to take a trip, I needed something to read, so I grabbed it. And I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And if it's interesting enough, I'll stick with it. But if not, you know, it's one plane flight. I can live without it. I opened that book and almost got completely distracted from the vacation we were taking mm-hmm. because I didn't want to stop reading it. Right. It and so it's not and it's it, and it's it's a hernia picking that thing up. It's it's, it's, heavy. it's a yeah, uh, well fortunately for a lot of a lot of biographies are are 6 and 700 pages and mm-hmm. Isaacson wrote one that is gets to the point quickly. He's right. a he's an interesting writer and and he holds your attention, but Franklin's life as you alluded to is everybody's life is built on chapters and and sometimes the chapters are slightly more interesting than other it, but his there wasn't a moment in the 80 year 80 plus years that he was alive that he wasn't doing something uh and all things at the same time being a diplomat being uh, a statesman um writing uh publishing inventing discovering it was this that endless uh, search for knowledge yeah right. thirst right and it really started didn't it uh at the hands of his uh of his dad uh who was a soap and candle maker yeah. right and how, does, he, how did that shape his life well actually his dad probably wasn't as as encouraging uh, franklin's that kind of kid who grows up in a household where he's clearly smarter than everybody else mm-hmm. uh he's the young he was the youngest so he probably got beat up a lot too yeah and and he <laughs> was and you know how when you have a, a kid who is um and a house full of people who are intelligent enough on a normal, in a normal sense, but not as intuitive as he is, mm-hmm. would find him to be the weird kid in the family. And it seemed like he was sort of the weird little kid in the family who was doing and saying things. For, he was a proponent of swimming, 
even as a young man. Ben Franklin? Ben Franklin, he wrote a lot of treatise on swimming when people were petrified to get in the water with good reason. You know, the water was not always your friend. It was filled with bacterium, and they didn't understand bacterium, so people were just petrified to put their... So water meant death. Water meant death, and he was the opposite. He swam from a very early age, studied swimming, studied strokes on his own, and wrote pamphlets on the art and did instructional swimming lessons in the Charles first and then later in the... uh, the, uh, River, not the Schuylkill, but the uh, Chesapeake. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 is it possible that he invented the? Uh, well, I think the Australian invented the crawl, but maybe the breaststroke. It sounds like he did a modified sort of doggy paddle, keep your head above water kind of thing. But he was a lifelong proponent until his health became problematic and he couldn't really do it anymore. But he would, in every city, of course, in the old world, was located along a river, so he always had access to relatively clean water, and. Uh, him jumping in the water and swimming. First of all, they did it, you know, buck naked. So that yeah, was, there yeah. was that. There weren't <laughs> swimming costumes. No, there right. was not. Right. But uh, also, he would he would try to encourage his friends to do this, and he would go down in the morning and take a dip and do a little for both exercise and personal hygiene, which were two things were were an anthemum to the the 18th century male. You know, the only exercise they ever did was was dancing, and the and the indication of that was a well developed calf. Well, the rest of your body withered. <laughs> That's what they often. They actually wore prosthetic devices in their socks to make it look like they had a more well-developed calf in those oh, days, because oh, wow. that demonstrated that you're a man of leisure. You could dance more than. I remember this dance. in the pictures of him. I'm thinking yeah. he must have been doing squats and toe raises. Yeah, no, but he had real calves and yeah. other. I mean, even though he was kind of a husky right. young man yeah, yeah, and then yeah. a portly old man, he was always physically fit. So, um, from what I've read, uh, and, I'm, and I'm just getting you know, getting started on the on the book, and uh, but from what I've read, it, it, did his brother beat him up when he was a well, kid? Well, yeah, his brother was he was much younger than the older brother, and they were from that they were um, the tradesmen's class. You know, they were they were what we would call middle class today, or middling mm-hmm. is the term they used, and so they were expected to go into a trade. And his father had a. Franklin's father was in a pretty mediocre trade, low caste trade. He was, as you referred to before, he was a fat boiler. He took animal renderings and turned them into soaps and candles and things. So he wanted better for his kids and his oldest son. So when he walked, when the dad walked into a bar, they go, "Here he comes, the fat oh, boiler." Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> you could smell him before. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was yeah. a smelly profession, and uh-huh. they, of course, they plied their trade in their home. They usually lived upstairs, sure. so the smell of rendering fat pervaded the. Nice. Created the house. Uh, so the oldest brother was, was apprenticed to a printer, which is a much higher level uh, trade. Mm-hmm. And then when Franklin, Benjamin, was old enough to be apprenticed, he apprenticed him to his older brother. The father did. And, uh, but the older brother was, was, first of all, not nearly as smart. He was smart enough. He wrote a newspaper and, and that kind of thing. But Franklin was much brighter than the older brother. Which made, old, which made him mad, obviously. It made him mad, and, and the older brother was, was, you know, verged on cruelty, you know, which probably wasn't uncommon in those days, but he was a bit of a martinet. He would push him around, and, and so Franklin was... Vocabulary word <laughs> alert. He was a martinet. Look it up. <laughs> it was a test later, so pay attention. <laughs> things, things come fast. Uh, yeah, he would, he would restrict Benjamin to just being in the back room and, and handling type and, and cleaning things up. And Franklin had a, you know, he had a thirst to write. He wanted to be in, in print. And the newspaper that his brother was publishing was a second-tier paper in Boston. And uh, so Franklin wanted to write, but his brother would not accept any of the written material that his younger brother would even you right. know, prefer it makes to sense, him. Yeah. So that's when Franklin came up with his first, uh, his, his, his first uh, pseudonym, which was Silence Do Good. Uh, and so his brother didn't know? No, I had no idea. No, matter of fact, no one knew it was for sure it was him until much later in Franklin's life. But he would stay up at night after the brother left. He slept in the shop, and he would write these things. The, and he wrote as a woman, yes? He wrote as a, a middle-aged so, spinster woman. So Mrs. Silence Do Good. Mrs. Si- yeah, Fascinating. Mrs. Yeah. And wow. then he would slide it under the door of the shop so that when the brother opened the shop in the morning, he would be there, and he would read these things, and they were always fascinating and insightful, and they were satirical and a bit cutting of local politicians which they all were opposed to you know everybody had a they, even in in those days had an axe to grind with the local politicians so 
uh, they found his brother and the, and his contemporaries found her writing, you know, to be funny and and interesting, and so he would publish them, and she would constantly slide these things. One thing I always found amazing though was that <laughs> Boston in those days was a small town, right? And how they could not know that there was wasn't a woman named Silence Dugan <laughs> floating around, but I, I assume that they must have must have just chalked up to right. a pseudonym right. for another woman right. because he wrote so well as a woman they were confident that it was in fact some local middle-aged woman who was living alone and writing these things now do you do you know if the brother ever figured it out i don't believe that he did i think uh-huh. i don't remember i read that you know i read the book a few months ago but i don't believe the brother ever knew for sure wow but wow. he he eventually you know he chafed under his brother's evil yoke and couldn't take it anymore uh-huh. so he absconded with himself and essentially stole himself from his brother and jumped ship in Boston Harbor and went first to New York and then finally in Philadelphia. Amazing. Amazing. And, and you'd think that the brother, well, maybe I didn't like he was a, he was a great guy, but you'd think he'd want to be, you know, I need to, I need to find this woman so I can pay her. Or, yeah, I guess he wasn't smart enough to figure yeah, out it's, that he It's needed, a windfall. Right, well, he was getting it for free, you know. He was right. getting the milk for free, so why yeah. pay for the cow? And the, and the image of, uh, of Franklin just reading the paper laughing. Yeah, he was. They, there's a, a passage in the book where Franklin was in the back setting type, as his brother had instructed him to do, and his brother and his other contemporary printers out front reading these things mm-hmm. and getting you know big charge out of this stuff. How great she was, and he was in the back, and he was. He that's another trait that he had. He didn't necessarily always need to be recognized for what he did. That's most people have difficulty doing that i'm not always great about not being yeah i'm with you but he was satisfied knowing that he had pulled something over on his brother i'm sure and that it was being printed and it was in the press and that was that was good enough for him and and when you teach when you teach uh uh, american history to your your students Mm -hmm. uh and and you go through franklin What's the most uh, early fascinating thing about him? Would it be something like this? It would. I I always throw anecdotal stories about this, but unfortunately, when you're compelled to get through a certain amount of curriculum in the year, it's not the biggest way. If you were teaching a college course and you could spend time on it, it'd be awesome, and right. I would love that. But for high school social studies, you have to like hit the high notes and and get on with things. Right. So, you know, I use it to hold their interest. But you know, Franklin will eventually be. Uh, part of writing the Declaration, he's really the editor of the Declaration. You know, Jefferson certainly wrote it; he edited it. So that's about as much as we can right. talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when did it become clear that Franklin was a special? I mean, like nationally, internationally, when did it become clear that he was something special? Well, I think the thing that really brought him to international attention was his conquest of the thunderbolt, the lightning bolt, because up until that point, he was well known within the community of, of people. He how does something like I'm sorry? How does something like that happen when all of a sudden you're known as well? You're you're a writer, you're a silent mm-hmm. student, and then all and and to discovering electricity. How does that happen? Well, he um, once he became more financially successful, which is a long tale to tell. But once he got to that point and he was living in Philadelphia, he began to branch off into many other interests. He started the first fire department in Philadelphia and the Night Watch, which is the proto police force in Philadelphia, and. He did a lot of work in Philadelphia's street lights. He designed one that could be re- easily repaired so that they had illuminated streets. And the reason I tell you, because eventually he started this organization called the Junta, which was a meeting of men of, of his ilk who were interested in community service and that kind of thing. And they would meet and they'd discuss their ideas. And one of the prevailing issues in the world up until the 18th century was large buildings getting struck by lightning and, and essentially blown up. If a church tower, got hit, church tower got hit by a bolt of lightning, it would explode and the building would probably burn to the ground. At that particular time in Franklin's life, the playing around with static electricity as a static charge was basically a parlor trick that people oh would, gosh. they had little devices and it was a, basically a glass orb and you took a piece of um, sheepskin, right. you know, and you would, touch it against a glass orb and spin it and it would create that static charge and then you'd touch somebody and you the blue spark, you know how we... Yeah, like, so it's like, like getting a balloon to stick to your head. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was fun and people would... Enter, and guys who would actually go around and do tricks with that stuff and entertain. But it, he was he made that intuitive leap to see that blue spark and realize that the, the difference between that spark and a bolt of lightning seemed to be inconsequential to him. But he didn't... He had to make that that that... He had to perform the test to determine that that was, in fact, the same thing. And that's the famous kite 
Situation. And is that is that lore or is that a no, real? No, that's thing? a real thing. He and his son William, his his oldest child, his who was illegitimate, but uh, was born when Franklin was very young. They had a very close relationship for the most of the early part of William and and Benjamin's life. But they, um, it's not as dangerous as it looks. He the, his theory was that there was a static charge being built up in the atmosphere, so they ran a kite up when the thunderstorm was approaching, and they put a brass key on the the thread that right. held the uh, the kite, and he, with the knuckle of his index finger, he brought it close to the uh, the key, and a blue spark jumped from the key to the to his finger. <laughs> and he wasn't the only one doing experiments with electricity at that point. There were other guys. Leyden jars were being invented so they could store some of that charge. But he made the connection, and then he theorized correctly. You know, it's a long. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that if if that bolt of lightning could be redirected away from the building and into the ground, which is where it wants to go, that you could spare these buildings the, the catastrophe of being struck. So he invented the lightning, lightning rod. rod. Amazing. Right. Amazing. And most amazingly, invented the lightning rod and didn't, didn't seek to take financial credit for it. Yeah. Didn't yeah. control the idea of the rod, but he didn't feel like it was the kind of thing that he should profit off of that it was too much of a benefit to mankind. So he he published his findings, and he encouraged people to do it. It still took a while. People were still very skeptical of this idea of putting a metal rod on the top of the, the church spire and running a wire into the ground. They were probably huge, too, weren't they, these things? They yeah. were, he, um, they were just, they were a little more fanciful than lightning rods. Now it's just a rod that sticks up in the air, a little bit more design in, in, uh, in his theorization of how it would work it had to be pointed at the end so it was a kind of a pointy little spike but it's essentially exactly the same thing that appears on tall buildings today yeah and uh, elon musk has not given away te- teslas for free so, but he just <laughs> gave it away he just huh? gave That's it amazing. away he published his findings and he gave it away and anybody but you know they like i like i like i said a moment ago people were still highly skeptical of this uh this theory and so he really had to sell it to people and he got people to volunteer to do it he did it in his own house and and uh, eventually, obviously, it caught on. And do you know how that proceeded from from that point to actually being alternating current or direct current? Uh, no, that's a no. That's a great other story that you yeah. can read if you want to read about Thomas Edison and, mm-hmm. and George Westinghouse and sure. the, the great argument between alternating direct current. But it's really in its natal state. I mean, electricity as a as a science, you know, Watt will have to come around and figure out how to harness that electricity and, and channel it. But the fact that Lightning was electricity, was the big leap, and and the fact that it was a it was a parlor game, and it was probably probably some people who were going to church every Sunday who thought it was of the devil. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's God's judgment from heaven that you know, and, right. and to mess with that, and that was where the expression later on, after they knocked King George off the throne, that Ben Franklin was the man who stole uh, lightning from the heavens and knocked crowns off. I think I'm paraphrasing correctly, but <laughs> that sounds essentially, good, yeah. essentially, right. And yeah. took scepters from tyrants. That's the that's okay. the term. So he so he became known as a as a writer and uh, and a discoverer and an, and an inventor and 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 what other things? Well, he had his hand in everything in the city of Philadelphia. Once he had the once he had the financial wherewithal to spend his time just thinking great thoughts. Right. You know, I told you about the the night watch and the fire department. Uh-huh. He also founded the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, it wasn't called that then, but that's what it is now. And what was his idea that, that was different Well, he from wanted an institute. There were already colleges of higher learning, and the oldest one in the country was Harvard, which was founded in the 17th century and Yale soon after that. Uh, but one of the components that they had that um, they were really founded on was that it was a religious institution, training, training ministers and things, people for the uh, Puritan faith. He wanted an uh, institution of higher learning that was strictly about learning practical things. Mm-hmm and studying the practicality of life. And so he founded that school. It was an instructional school for for young men so they could learn to do things like study things like electricity or you know, hydraulics or mm-hmm. anything else, writing, law. And it eventually became the University of Pennsylvania, which is still... Of course. Of, yeah. It's tough to one, get into. One of the, <laughs> one of the right, the uh, Ivy League right, schools of the East. For sure. The, uh, and, and, the uh, ancient eight. Uh, bifocals too, right? Bifocals. How did that come yeah. about? Well, that came about out of practicality. Much of what he did came out of practicality. His his vision faded with age, probably from sitting reading at night in candlelight, which was terrible for your eyes. 
Uh, so his, his vision in general had faded, and he also had presbyopia. He needed reading glasses. So he would have two pairs of spectacles on him all the time, one for seeing normally and then his reading glasses. And he would have to take off his spectacles and put on his reading glasses and vice versa all the time. And it occurred to him that that was a giant pain in the ass and he needed to find a better way. And so he had a, a lens grinder grind the two prescriptions and meld them together and put them in one pair of glasses and he propped them on the end of his nose and bifocals were born and gave that to get that away too. yeah he didn't right think of the royalties on bifocals yeah right he'd be they'd be living on that today if there were any yeah, franklins around but i don't think there are yeah. quite so frankly. what uh, quite what, frankly. What, <laughs> what else do you remember him for um in, in, in the invention world in the invention world um oh one of the things i just thought this was morning when i thought about the the podcast but there are simple things that we take for granted that everybody understands that if you walk out on a sunny day in the middle of the summer with a black shirt on, you're going to boil. Right. But they didn't make that intuitive leap that the sun and, and the color of the clothing that you wore had a relationship. And, but he did. It, it occurred to him that wearing a, a dark-colored suit was worse in the summer. But in order to prove that this was really a fact, in the winter he took a bolt of cloth, one black and one white, and laid it on a on some snow to see how it affected it. And of course, the snow under the, the black cloth melted, right. whereas the white cloth stayed. And so mm -hmm. he wrote that up as well and said, here's my, my thoughts on, on what clothes you should wear. He had thoughts on, on every aspect of people's lives and had no, no compunction about sharing them with you. How to sleep, how to, you know, what you should do at night. If you have difficulty sleeping, he wrote long um, scientific journals, semi-scientific mm -hmm. journals on, mm -hmm. on the art of sleeping and the art of swimming and the art of clothing and what one should wear and, you know. Gosh, a lightning rod and the yeah. fire department. So why, why do you think he was so successful at discovering slash inventing things? Was it just because nobody else was doing that? Because <laughs> there's so many books uh, written now on creativity, how to be a more creative right. person. I feel like I read all of those books to no avail. And... Um, but all of a sudden, this guy comes, comes, comes through. I mean, was he the first Renaissance man, do you think? Well, he was born in an age when people were allowed to think great thoughts, too. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was the Enlightenment. And um, it's, it's probable that people had thoughts about things like this in the past. But when the church was so powerful, I mean, Galileo got locked up in the tower for you know, suggesting that perhaps the earth wasn't the center of the universe. Right. And it basically ended his career. But when Franklin was born, I mean, it was a confluence of a lot of perfect events. And it was the middle of the, the Enlightenment period, especially scientific Enlightenment. So people were allowed to think great thoughts and talk about them without fear of persecution. Mm -hmm. So there is that, in fact. I mean, it doesn't diminish his, how, how insightful he was and clever he was. But he was a man of his time, and he, and he took full advantage of the fact that he was able to say the things that he said. He never married. He was kind of a free love kind of guy, too, which was kind of okay, but not 100% okay. Yeah, I wouldn't think the church <laughs> would be happy with that no, back in the I mean, Puritan era. Yeah, the Puritans were, he, you know, he left Massachusetts, which was a little bit more hardcore, and wound up in Pennsylvania. The Quakers were much more open-minded people. They were very religious, certainly, and very pious, but they were also more open-minded. And so that was an advantage for him, that he was in a city. It was a it was the largest city in the colony, and they were in favor of improvements, which was what en enabled him, once he had the wherewithal to do it, to do things like have the streets paved or insist in, in having the streets paved and having the streets illuminated and all the other things we talked about before. Um, it was the fourth largest city at the time that he lived there, the fourth largest city in the British Empire. Although, wow. Although the, British, the average British citizen didn't recognize that necessarily because sure. they always thought, which was part of the reason the revolution became such a thing, in the beginning is they diminished the uh, quality of what was going on on this side of the Atlantic. They just assumed that we were living in, you know, wood yeah. huts. Yeah. But Philadelphia was, was a well-appointed city. I mean, it, you know, it didn't have a million people for sure, it was, but it was, it was a large city with a lot going on, very cosmopolitan and very open, and because the Quakers were basically in charge and they had an, uh, more of an open-minded view than a lot of the other religious communities that hugged the coast at the time, uh, a guy like Franklin was able to to do the things that he did and uh, 
strode around Philadelphia like a big shot. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, by the way, that uh, that airplane that just almost crashed into our microphones. <laughs> uh, we're we're outside on July fourth, two thousand seventeen, which I think it's a, it's a, it's it's appropriate to be talking about Ben Franklin and uh, and you know that we're with uh, with Bill Leone, who's just the, my favorite historian ever. Uh, and in a moment, we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about Ben Franklin, the revolutionary. So if you walked inside the Intelligence for Your Life uh, offices with the researchers and all the broadcasting, you would know that uh, we're the type of company that needs a workspace where uh, small teams can collaborate at a moment's notice. It's what we do, again, with our radio show staff. And there's a name for it now. It's called the Huddle Room, a small conference area where you, you have your meetings and you use video conferencing. We use it so much. The problem is that the audio on these video conference software deals, it's usually terrible, which is why we use Dolby Voice and the Dolby Conference phone. You can't believe how clear and crisp the audio is, so it makes my meetings go so much quicker. They're so much easier to follow. You can hear everything. Dolby Voice and the Dolby Conference phone allows everybody to be heard, makes meetings much easier to participate in, no matter where you are in the world. Also, Dolby Voice and the Dolby Conference phones are now integrated with leading video conferencing solutions. I want you to do this. Visit Dolby.com slash Tesh, and you can try a Dolby Voice demo today. Again, that's Dolby.com slash Tesh for a free demo. You got to hear it to believe it. You know we're always talking about longevity hacks here on the podcast and vitamins and supplements. They're, of course, one of the best, most uh, basic ways to ensure you're meeting your body's nutrition needs. It can be so hard, though, at least it is for me anyway, to figure out which ones to take, especially in the drugstore when nobody is there to help you out. But thankfully, Care Of is a new vitamins company that is here to help. Now, on their site, they ask you a few questions about your diet and health goals and recommend the best supplements for you. Really easy, quick process, just takes a few minutes. And then they send you your supplements in personalized daily packs, which are so convenient. Best of all, they only use the best ingredients in their vitamins and supplements. Plus, you actually save money by getting your vitamins through Care Of rather than your local health food store. So go to takecareof.com now and get a personalized recommendation. Then use my code TESH, T-E-S-H, and get 50% off your first order. Now that's a deal. That's takecareof.com, offer code TESH for 50% off your first order. We're speaking with Bill Leone, who's our, uh, our favorite historian and also has become a de facto family member of, of ours. And we're talking about uh, Ben Franklin, uh, who was born in 1706 and, and uh, passed on in, in 1790. And a lot of this has been generated, a lot of this podcast has been generated by uh, our, uh, our feelings for Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of, of Ben right. Franklin, which is superb. I'm still in the early parts of it, but... Um, but Bill, Bill teaches this stuff every day, and it's, it's really been fascinating so far. And before we get into Ben Franklin, the uh, revolutionary, I want to talk about what was happening um, what was happening back in the day. Uh, how, were, how was Ben how, and, and the people that he interacted every day, how were they living? What was, I know hygiene was a, was a big, was a big <laughs> yeah. problem, and you, yeah. and you could uh, – uh, and without being too graphic, <laughs> but but right. I mean I mean the wrong hygiene back right. in the early 1700s could kill you. Absolutely. So people, what what, what was died he facing? Ridiculous what, things all right, the time. Right. What was life expectancy yeah, we like? Uh, and, yeah, and in the what, 40s, you know, you, if you lived into your 40s, you were an old man. Right. You know, he lives to be 80, so something's different amazing. Yeah, amazing. amazing. And loved to eat too. Yeah, he ate well. Yeah. Uh, he did suffer in his old age from gout, uh-huh. and he had kidney stones, and there was no. <laughs> yeah. I know. Wow. Yeah, and there was no there was no medical remediation for either of those right, things. Right. So when you had an attack, you just you just muscled through until it passed. No so as he was, so as he was inventing and writing yeah. and discovering and all of that stuff and right before again before he became a re- revolutionary, what was he dealing with uh, uh, on a daily basis? Well, you know, often uh, kids will ask me in school like, if you could be alive in any time in history, where would you be? Ah, great question. And, and, yeah, it is a great question, and one of the things that I often think is that would be great to live during colonial America, during a revolutionary period. That would be great fun. Mm-hmm. But you could not, I'm 100% convinced, like if I walked down the beach today and kicked a bottle and a genie popped out and said, where would you like to go? And I said, <laughs> 1760. And he popped me back there, I'd probably kill myself. <laughs> Why? Because it was disgusting. I mean, if you're grown up in it, if you were raised in that kind of atmosphere, you probably didn't know the difference. But, I mean, I told you that Franklin would swim, but the average citizen bathed infrequently at best 
I was relating to you a story yesterday about the yeah tell that story the girl who uh, I read a diary it was in Williamsburg and it was a girl's diary that you were able to read and she um, was preparing for her wedding and it was May and she uh, was taking her bath for her wedding in May the wedding in fact was in June. So she was bathing in May <laughs> for her June wedding. She wanted to get in early. Yeah, you know, and they also wow. wanted to make sure, I think, that perhaps if she took her bath and croaked, that, you know, well, no harm, no foul, we could move on to the next girl. Whoa. But So she took her bath and survived it and, and went on. They bathed very infrequently. They, you know, they did not have the numbers of articles of clothing that we have today. So people would routinely, especially in the Midland classes, which is what Franklin worked in, would wear the same suit of clothes day in and day out with very little laundering involved. Um, they, uh, they didn't brush their teeth. They didn't eat well. They ate a, you know, a diet that was constricting of the bowels at best, and they drank a tremendous amount of alcohol so that uh, you were half in the bag most of the time. Yeah, I, I remember this story that you were telling me the other day when we were preparing for this uh, this podcast about – there wasn't there a guy. I mean, there was this this one guy who uh, Recently, wrote, wrote a wrote yeah. a book about the year of living biblically. He tried to do that, but wasn't there a guy who tried to live in like colonial right. days? He's tell me about that. Writer for Vice magazine. Okay, tell me. And uh, he well, uh, one of the things that he does is he uh, he adopts the uh, the habits of famous people from famous periods. He always liked to live then, and he wanted to live like it was seventeen seventy. Mm-hmm. So he turned off the electricity in his house in Brooklyn. <laughs> In his apartment in Brooklyn in the middle of the summer, turned off the uh, the juice, turned hit all the circuit breakers, and got the old woolen clothing that they would wear year round, and uh, stopped bathing and started eating and drinking. He he actually used a, a, a something he read that John Adams had written about what he would eat normally during the course of the day. So he started his first day in 1770 with uh, two pints of hard cider. And he said, I, I was in the bag like all day long because he was two ciders in the morning and a couple at lunch. He goes, I don't know how these guys got anything done. So he was just hammered. Hammered all day. And, of course, after two days, his roommates didn't want him in the apartment anymore because he smelled like you know two days of backed up sewer because he hadn't bathed. And it's summertime in Brooklyn. He's wearing wool. And, and then he's eating food that he's not used to. And it's a heavy diet of cheese and bread and alcohol and and now he's not moving his bowels, if that's okay to say on the yeah, podcast. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he's feeling like crap, and he's looking like crap. And <laughs> he said he only lasted four days. Oh my god! Four days, and that was how it. long was he trying to go? I'm not sure, but four days was enough for him. He was out. I forget what he, was he, pretty, said. he was killing himself. Yeah, he decided to take the 1770 cure though, and he found a guy who was a Russian dude who was who applied this trade in Brooklyn today, who applied you know traditional methods of of healing and he went and got leeches put on his no he, he didn't had, he had a couple of leeches right on his abdomen and was that supposed to cure constipation i don't know what it was supposed to do but it didn't make him happy i could tell oh you my that. he was he was very unhappy with the whole experience but why don't we do this this will be great I mean, yeah go ahead you let me, <laughs> write me a letter and let me know i'm telling you hey if, we like a good scotch we'll just switch to me <laughs> whatever go. the heck that's that something yeah hard cider how bad can it be i think connie could probably make us make us some hard cider thinks she's good at that kind of stuff um, wow. So the thing that's, and I don't want to go too far in the weeds, but, but it's, it is, it is fascinating to me because after watching gladiator a thousand times, I've become fascinated with the Romans and the Spartans and all those right. guys, you know, but, uh, it, it seems to me that during Roman times, everybody was a little, was a little healthier and, and it wasn't, well, they were it, healthier, it, it, sure. but, but so how come that didn't carry well, over to colonial times? You know, it, 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 it has a lot to do with civic organization. I mean, the Romans ran a, a, an extremely tight ship, but they also understood the, the value of, uh, the, the dog is choking on something. <laughs> Sorry, we're out there. Go, go ahead. Uh, the value of fresh water. Uh-huh. And so this is the Romans, the Romans. Yeah, okay. So once they, once they conquered a territory, one of the first things they did was make sure that there was fresh water coming into town and going out of town so that there wasn't somebody upriver who was, you know, fouling the water by right. taking a dump in the, right. in, in the river. <laughs> Thanks for that picture. There you go. Right. <laughs> right. There you go, kids. Then that's your education for today. <laughs> Social Studies 101. Taking a dump in the river. No, stop. But, uh, okay, yeah. okay. Okay. So listen, how come it didn't? Uh, and so, so you're saying that they were you healthier, right? Yeah. You could not maintain that kind of thing unless you have like today in, in the united states of america we have working relationships with all neighboring communities and we work beyond the borders of our own community so that a small town and neighboring small towns can all 
work together to make sure the fresh water comes in and sewerage goes out. But in the Middle Ages, uh, which really uh, influences and shades the, the opinion of people in the uh, 18th century, um, that had all broken down. So we were basically Amazing. living out of well water. So it just went backwards. And yeah, went, yeah, yeah. They were not, the Romans weren't the first ones to understand that daily bathing was an important thing. They weren't the first ones to understand that you know, a, a constant supply of fresh water was a good thing. Phoenicians did. I mean, it was... Well, didn't they it, leave enough evidence that the colonials could you do You know, that? once Rome fell, a lot of what the Romans had done had been forgotten or suppressed. Um, the Romans were not the most popular guys in Western Europe, you know, because they, yeah. all the conquering and the pillaging and the, right. and the, you and know, the burning Caesar. of edifices. And, and the things. Caesars. And, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and what they got into. So they were not popular. And a lot of... A lot of that literature, is a, there's, a, there's an interesting book of how um, Ireland saved Western civilization because apparently some monks, I didn't read it yet, and I'm, one day I'm going to, because it sounds like, it's like we went to Ireland recently, and they, you know, like every other culture, they take credit sometimes for things you're thinking, really? Did you invent whiskey? <laughs> you know we invented whiskey, the guy said to me one day. I said, all right, go ahead, tell me the story. But um, these monks had obtained some of the liter some of the library, Roman libraries, and and a lot of the history of what the Romans had done, and secured it in the monastery, hidden away because it was also, mm. you know, it was antithetical to the Christian faith that was was developing. So a lot of what whatever they thought was good must have been bad. Mm -hmm. It's part of the yeah part of the deal there as well. So uh, we established the fact that it was difficult to stay alive just because of the hygiene problems at that you know yeah. uh, in the in the middle 1700s and right. and and so. Uh, at this point, before we st we talk about uh, Franklin as the revolutionary, was he seen as a court jester, or was he a, a guy with parlor tricks, or was he seen as somebody who who had stature? And how no, was sure. and how was he how was he generating income? Uh, well, he had that printing business. That was the source of that. Once he had which came from his dad, right? No, no, no. That was remember his dad was a soap boiler. Oh, that's right. That's right. right. That's right. But and his but James, his brother was his a, brother was a printer, but he right. left his brother and he went out on his own and started business on his own. And that's an interesting part of the story how he eventually acquired his own print shop. But he was he was aggressive in business as a person would need to be. You know, he was he was intuitive enough to know that he had to compete with his neighbors. Yeah, other he wasn't. He was certainly not the only printer in Philadelphia. He began to publish Poor Richard's Almanac, which was wildly successful and you know, featured oh, of much of his own writing, and that that boosted him along. But one of the things that really secured his financial future was what he did with his own apprentice, and that was that he not only trained them to be printers, but he would set them up in print shops, and he really was sort of the father of franchising. I was going to say, yeah, yeah syndicating he, franchising, yeah. He would, he would help establish a printer who was an apprentice of his in another community, as far as, even in the Caribbean, some of as far as some of the Caribbean islands, opened print shops. He'd help set them up and, you know, help foot the bill to a degree for the shop itself, and the only thing they really needed to do with him was to buy the ink and the paper, and anybody right. who's in business knows that the real money is not in selling hammers, but in selling nails. Mm -hmm. So... He, you know, sold them. He gave them the hammer and then sold them the nails. Oh, he wow. sold them the paper and the ink, and that created a very steady stream of income, which then allowed him to be sort of the gentleman scholar he always wanted to be. Then he could sit right. back and right. go to his junto meetings and think great thoughts and do interesting things. And he, you know, as as a result of his conquest of the lightning bolt, it, he gained international renown uh, and uh, uh, a stature among his peers. That eventually, in the, in the colony of Pennsylvania where he lived, he was clearly the person that many people referred to if they needed to get something done. And what they needed to get done in the 1760s was uh, the colony itself. It's like a golf out. You know, the golf when they have they pipe in the the bird sounds in the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I gave I gave her outside on July fourth, and, 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 and the bird, the mommy bird, just brought the baby. I don't even know if they can see, hear that, but they they, they just bought uh, brought some some <laughs> some worms. But you know, you know what I wanted to, I wanted to jump in in here on was is that when you're teaching, when you're lecturing at uh, at Manhattanville College, I want you to and you're telling the story about about him being the uh, Franklin being the father of uh, of franchising. I'm going to tell a story that's so far so far left, yeah. and you're going to be able. To, is that when I first started in entertainment tonight? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very in, much. Back in 1986, 
uh, the the idea of syndicating a, a television show like that was was like what what are you talking about yeah. you know we get the fact that Cronkite has the news and it comes into our house so what they, they what they did was they actually bought hundreds of stations satellite special satellite receivers that would only receive entertainment tonight and they said you can have it for free as long as you take the show yeah, for three years and, it, and it's really what Franklin right. did. Yeah, there was that. Those were the nails. There, yeah, there no, some, I, the hammer and the nail analogy. I, I have a, a history in, as, as a younger man of working in a hardware store, and we, that was, and, you know, I found out that we sold hammers. They we, they bought them there for. I don't know if, if the hammer cost ten dollars, we sold it for twelve. There's almost no markup on mm-hmm. it. But the nails, which we sold for, you know, I don't know a dollar fifty, but we right. bought them for twenty five right. cents. Right. So the markup was like four hundred percent, and my boss said, "Listen." You know, give them the hammer if they want it, but make sure they keep coming back. Yeah, it's like the loss lead. It's like selling milk as, yeah, a, as, a, as a loss leader. Yeah. When did, when did uh, he, uh, Franklin get plugged in by the revolutionaries uh, as someone who yeah. was going to help, help lead their question, fight? That's a question because most of his younger life, the first half of his life, he was 100% faithful kingsman. He was wow. he was proud to be part of the empire. He... Uh, he only envisioned the colonies as being ever part of the empire. He had a bigger vision of the colony. He had gotten a commission um, through the governor of Pennsylvania to be the postmaster general for the colonies. Mm-hmm. He and another guy shared the job, and it, he also provided an income for him, and, but it, it afforded him the opportunity to travel up and down the colonies. So what he envisioned the colonies becoming ultimately was something of what Canada eventually became, which was you know, semi-independent for a long time, but still part of the crown and faithful to the queen and part of this bigger, broader, and much more um, advantageous empire. And so that's what, he, that's what he loved. He loved his colony. He loved the king. He loved the crown. He loved the empire. But he didn't love, as many of his b- people in his working-class environment didn't love, was the Penn family, who were the proprietors of the Pennsylvania colony. There were a variety of ways in which colonies were administered uh, and one of them was a, as a proprietary colony where one family or one person got the charter and they basically were the kind of the lord of that colony. Sure. And William Penn was that. And his family and his extended family enjoyed a privilege within the colony that the average colonists didn't. They didn't have to pay taxes, for instance. And as the middle class rose and as Pennsylvania became successful and as Philadelphia became the big city that it was, they began to sort of chafe under that that system. And so he was appointed by his fellow members of the, the lower house of the legislature to go to England and petition the crown to turn the colony into a royal colony, which essentially meant that the Pens would lose their charter and the governor would then be appointed by the king and parliament. And they would then lose that, that advantage. And so he was sent to England specifically to do that. He and his son William went. Who, who sent? So who sent him? The the uh, lower house, I believe, of right. Pennsylvania. I have to do that. Right. But there was a two house system, and the upper house was a, all members of the Penn family, yeah. and the lower house of the legislature were people who were elected. Uh, but it was not an even distribution. So why not? With the life he was leading, why not just sort of? St- and I know a lot of people did. Yeah. Why not just stay out of the way? You know, because I mean, you risk being, yeah, being was, hanged, right? He, well, no, at that point, not. He was. That was a. That was a legal argument that was. Right. Easily made. The so, difficulty was that the Pens had a lot more power than the rest of the right, people who sent right. him. But what he was doing was not necessarily revolutionary in its own right. Mm-hmm. It was it was simply trying to. The king would still be the king of Pennsylvania, you know, as, as he would be the king of England. Uh, but then, like in New York, and later in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts by that time, the governor would and Virginia, the governor would be sent by the crown, and they'd have a much stronger hand in the way the colony was run. Right. Uh, but the Pens were still pretty. Um, powerful within England. William Penn never left England. He stayed in mm-hmm. England mm-hmm. all of his life. It was his family who came over. Uh, and so he was, there were always forces within the government working against that from ever being truly successful. Right. But he stayed at it for over a decade, which is another amazing thing. He leaves wow. Philadelphia, uh, leaves his common-law wife behind because he and Deborah had never married, uh, though they had a few children. William was not the product of that relationship. He was the product of a a liaison at a much younger age that Franklin had with a woman of ill repute, apparently. Mm-hmm. No, no, no one ever really knows. At any rate, he and William went, and they stayed there for over a decade. It was only supposed to be you know, a few months, and months turned into years, and years turned into a decade where he constantly... Eventually, uh, other colonies had hired him to do similar things with Parliament because they had no voice in Parliament. Right. Uh, and it was while he was over there 
enjoying the fruits of London and living the, the, the life that he really had always wanted to lead, which is a very cosmopolitan, sort sure. of yeah. interesting life. Uh, things were happening on the other side of the Atlantic that he left behind that he sort of lost touch with a little bit. And, and the Stamp Act moment was the real sort of turning point in, in one way because the colonists, he thought that the colonists would probably be okay with it if it was broached the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, they absolutely were not, as everybody knows. Right. And they revolted against that. And um, he his, his reputation took a hit back in the colonies because... People back here started to think, well, maybe he's too much of a king. Yeah, yeah. Why isn't he taking sides? Why isn't Why right. isn't he with us on this? Right. Why he seems like he's being a little bit too much of the king's boy here, and he had to go to pains later on to demonstrate that in fact he was not. Uh, and he wrote letters to people back here to to help him sort of out. With what that a kind of what a sticky place to be, huh? It was he was in a bad spot, uh, but things changed for him when um, a, a letter that he had gotten hold of that didn't. Um, reflect well on the governor, uh, came into his possession. He leaked it to the press, like as we say now. Yeah, he, yep. he was a leaker. Right. Uh, and another guy. Putin got involved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, history repeating itself over and over and over again. Uh, he eventually stepped forward and took the credit for having leaked it, and mm-hmm. he got called before what's called the Privy Council. And uh, there were a lot of guys, especially the upper class and the nobility class, who sort of, tolerated a guy like Franklin, but he was clearly a member of the lower rung. And the fact that he was getting so much attention from so many people in London and in Paris, they weren't really 100% cool with that kind of thing. And right, so right. this guy who was uh, whose name escapes me as well now, but he was a British lord and he was the head of the Privy Council, and he took the opportunity to just cut Franklin to the quick, just dragged him before the court and escorted, you know, just eviscerated him in front of the wow. Privy Council. And right. Franklin which was a, a skill he had developed earlier on of understanding when, when to fight and when not to, knew mm-hmm. that there was nothing he could say in there that was going to make this any different. And so he simply took it, you know, stoically, uh, turned around, and from that moment forward, he was a member of the revolution, and he made his way back to the colonies just in time. He was always around just in time. Do you think he was lucky to get out of there alive? No, I don't, I don't think so. No, because at that point, things were, I mean, it was long before the, it was the Declaration of Independence that made things that, that, that risked their lives. Right. Before that, they were just being petulant children as far as the crown was concerned. And where was Franklin when the fighting broke out? And, and, and well, he was, in, he was in England when Lexington and Concord happened. 75, wow. he's still in England. And then, you know, that's when I guess he sort of realized that things were going. Yeah. 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 Things were going south fast. Yeah. Having seen Hamilton nine times, yeah. I guess that's where I got my history. <laughs> that's a good lesson. Yeah. Wow. But, that's uh, a- yeah. He made it back in time for the Second Continental Congress and he, and back in time to participate in the writing of the Declaration. And a lot's, a lot's been, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but a lot's been written about him, his trips to France. What was that, that, that all about? That was later, right? After he had, after he had come back. And participated in the Congress and made what was a fateful decision to, you know, to tell the crown. I mean, they didn't make it lightly. They initially attempted to appeal to the king directly to avoid the conflict that had already begun mm-hmm. sure. by some, sending something called the Olive Branch Petition, which was basically appealing to the king as faithful subjects of the king to intervene on their behalf with Parliament and try to let cooler heads prevail. Right. But the king not only didn't entertain the petition he never chose to even read it right the response was to hire hessian soldiers who were mercenaries from germany and send them over so he took the opposite tact and that's what brought them among other things of course to the decision to write the declaration which was really that was the moment when a man's head could be put in a in a rope once you, you sign that thing you were signing your own wow. death warrant yeah. and and he was embraced in in france was he not for his mm. for his wit and intellectual yeah, absolutely hey they uh they they uh, they welcomed him with open arms. Louis Louis welcomed him with Louis the the sixteenth welcomed with less open arms. He was, you know, he was clearly wildly popular, and his face appeared eventually when he got over there. His face appeared on all kinds of of porcelain and Limoges things. People were he he understood he understood the power of of networking. Sort of mm-hmm. he and when he got there, he realized that what they viewed him as was the um, the enlightened rustic, that mm-hmm. he was this man of the woods, which he right. really wasn't necessarily. Right. <laughs> uh, and so he took he had acquired this fur cap 
that uh, he wore for warmth on, on shipboard, but we realized when he got there that this cap made him look like this rustic character. So he wore, you know, homespun suits and this woolen and this um, fur cap. And and meanwhile, in France, especially in that in that period, I mean, it was high fashion, and men wore makeup and you know high heeled shoes, and they were mm-hmm. very much the dandy and perfumed. And he was sort of just this natural, you know, the mm-hmm. nature boy. Yeah. Come walking around town, so his picture appeared on all kinds of things, on plates and and, and in magazines, in France. newspapers. Yeah. yeah. So Louis wanted a a uh, one of his own, so he had one made for himself, which was a chamber pot with Franklin's face on the bottom of the pot. Wow. <laughs> and, and was he known as the first ambassador, the U.S. He ambassador? He was. Yeah. His job specifically when he went there was he was sent by Congress because one of the things that they, I mean, all wars, all human conflict revolves around one element alone it's not manpower or ability to fight it's all about money and if you have no money you can't fight right it doesn't pay you don't have guns you don't have uniforms right. sure. there's no blankets and they had no money right and so the idea was that he was going to appeal to france for money whether it's loans or grants or gifts in order to foot the bill for the revolution that we're going to fight and ideally if we could get him on board to fight as as allies with us but france was of course you know, logically redu- reluctant to get too overly involved in the sure. game. Anything that would give England a black eye was 100% okay with them. Right. But, you know, you don't want to you don't want to join the side of a loser. And, and if the colonies got whooped in this battle, it would not right. reflect well on France. And so it was a long arg- arduous task. I mean, he got money, he got guns, they, they, you know, it would trickle out of France, right. but right. that recognition as a France was the first to recognize the United States as an independent country, but that, that was a while. We had right. to we had to demonstrate we we're going to win. The Battle, Battle of Saratoga was the uh, turning right. point, and then they were kind of all in. And and that. we hear so much about Jefferson and and Adams and and Hamilton with the with the Declaration, but mm. I was surprised to learn the uh, the, the uh, huge role that Ben Franklin had. Well, he was the editor. That's real. I mean, that's amazing. Jefferson it's, wrote it, hundred percent. So he, he, but he yeah. said, "We can you can you uh, well, there punch was a, this up a little bit." Well, the uh, the Congress had appointed a committee to write the declaration. There were five men on the committee, Adams, uh, Franklin, Jefferson, uh, Sherman, and I think Livingston from New York. And so they went off to write this declaration, but they all agreed from the beginning. Jefferson was not at that point a uh, universally well-known member of Congress. He was very young, and he was he's not a great public speaker, and it was not comfortable doing that, so he often sat silently in Congress, but he was a great writer, and, and most of the people recognize that. And, and even Adams said, listen, you have to write to Jefferson. You have to write this thing because, you know, I'd like to write it. He, wa- he always wanted credit for things, but he said, you know, he gave several good reasons, one of which was most people here hate me yeah. in the Congress, and yeah. they're not going to yeah. accept it from me, but you can write infinitely better than all of us, so you need to write it. So Jefferson went off for three or four days and wrote this thing on his own and then submitted it to Adams and, and – uh, Franklin and Franklin did a, a major edit, including the part where um, it says all men are. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, the original right. line was you know, holy and sacred. He crossed that out because he wanted to sort of remove God from the equation. Not that he was opposed to God in any way, but he wanted to make it logical that it was just pure logic that mm-hmm. men deserve to be free. And so he edited that phrase to be, you know. We hold these truths right. to be self-evident right. Right. that all men are created equal. Yeah, he was a big uh, proponent of abolishing slavery. I, I, I know well, that. later in his life, that coming, he actually owned slaves in his life. Franklin, mm-hmm. um, there's not a whole lot of information. It was just domestic servants, but you know, he was a man of his time. Certainly, as a young man, and sla- slaves were slavery was legal in every colony, including mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. Right, but um, he had slaves early on. But he came late in his life to the understanding that it was an abomination and that yeah. he, the last act of his life is really um, his participation in the abolitionist movement in, right. in Pennsylvania, which was where abolitionism in the colonies was really born, the right. Quakers. Well, I, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast uh, with you is that I really wanted to, you know, make this uh, amazing character, you know, come alive and, and encourage people to 
to get Walter Isaacson's book, which is uh, which all so far for me is a great read. I know you you respect yeah. it too. But you know what we're always talking about on the podcast on the radio show is what you know what can we? Because I love biographies, right? Because I think rather than re- reading a self help book, when I was in a ki- when I was a kid, junior high and high school, I just always read biographies, and you and you measure your life against the people that you're right. that you're reading about. And I'm sure you do the same thing. And I'm sure the people who are listening are, are doing it. So I mean, what what do you think? Um, you know, business people and creatives can can learn about what about what Franklin did. Well, first of all, what I would tell them is to get the book and read it because I, like you said, I read biographies all the time, and right. most of them are five hundred, six hundred, and seven hundred pages. <laughs> you can listen too. I and I, you know, I, I always pick one up and I start to read, and I think, oh God, here we go again. It's in another month and a half before I finish this thing. Right, I, right. I read a uh, Carl Sandburg wrote a biography on Lincoln. It was in two editions. It was two parts, two volumes. So I read the first one, which was The Prairie Years. It was fascinating. And so I said, let me read the second part. So I went to the library to get it. This is back when people did that kind of thing. I went to the library for the second edition, and there was actually, part two was five books. The, what's great about the, the Franklin biography is it's not 500 pages. It's not huge. Right. It's, it's manageable. So I encourage everybody to read it. But what you take from this is you look at a man who could have, as you said before, at any point in his life could have said, I have made it. I mean, my my contemporaries and I are now approaching that age where sure. retirement is a possibility, and it seems like a lot of us only talk about retiring from life. He never retired from life. He never he never wasted time. He enjoyed his life a hundred percent. You get that from reading the book. He he didn't miss out on many parties, but he never wasted time in his life. He was always thirsting for knowledge. He always wanted to learn that new thing. And he always found the world endlessly fascinating, right to the, even even when he was struggling at the end of his life right, with right. with kidney stones and gout, right. he still read and he wrote and, and really he, fearless. Uh, absolutely, he came back and he participated in in the writing of the Constitution of the United States. I mean, this is there was no last act except when he finally died. That was you know, but at eighty four, which is amazing. Yeah, he was an old. The he was ancient that, as compared. To, oh yeah, to the rest yeah, of his. Yeah. Contemporary. You know, I was, I was going to. My next question, the final question, was going to be, you know, who reminds you of Franklin uh, in, you know, in today's contemporary society? And and I, I, Richard Branson sort of popped into my head. Yeah, you know, somebody like that who's who's just interested in everything, everything, and, all yeah. the time, and who has reached a point several times in his life where he could say, okay, now I can yeah, go. Even, yeah, yeah, I can go to the Riviera now and just sure. watch yeah. sailboats go yeah. by. And Elon Musk too. You know, that yeah, kind of thing. yeah, but they don't. Right, they, they just they keep going. On. I I think that that there are people who are. I one of the things I teach in my education courses, and it, it it's we do this thing called the grit test, which mm-hmm. is what you know. When having grit is the thing that makes people successful. It's not necessarily being the brightest. Uh, you don't have to be the smartest kid, although certainly that doesn't hurt to be bright. But uh, a person who can persevere, who 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 soldiers on despite what might be happening around them, despite the fact that your leg is swollen with gout or that you have kidney stones and, you know, things might, you just, just keep moving forward because the world moves forward anyway. Right. And, and if you can continue to be inquisitive and to be interested in the world around you and to find the world endlessly fascinating and want to be a part of it, I think maybe more than the swimming in the river... And the hygiene, which certainly didn't hurt him, I think that kept him alive. You yeah. mean to be yeah. reach eighty was like being one hundred and twenty so, years old. Now. So it's inspiring, amazing. and it's really you know I told you I think earlier that one of my favorite books, I've read it a couple of times. It has all this great research in it. Is Angela Duckworth's Grit? Yeah, because as a as a person with uh, average uh, SAT <laughs> scores, that would be me. Uh, I you know I've always I've always tried to jump in and 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 go after the kids that are so smart, right? Uh, like our son Gib, with uh, <laughs> with you know, uh, and and you included with you know with with that stick-to-itiveness. and uh, and so I would recommend that book that book right. uh, highly. So that's that's Ben Franklin, uh, Walter Isaacson's book, and there actually he even wrote it in autobiography. Franklin did. What? Who's little, your next? A little bit, a little bit less. Right. Detailed? Uh, no. <laughs> there are facts of his life that apparently I didn't I never read his autobiography, but he refers to it periodically in the introduction. He might have glossed over some of the parts of his life. That, <laughs> yeah. uh, you're entitled right. to do that when you write an autobiography. Yeah, sure. Right. Sure, sure, sure. No reason so, talking about that. So who should we who next time know. next time we have you on the show, who who who's another one of your favorite figures that we could talk about? Well, I've read 
endless Lincoln books. Lincoln is Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, I mean, right. so much so that somehow I must have influenced my own children because my grandson's first name is it's Lincoln. Lincoln. But yeah. I've read lots of Lincoln biographies, including the, the last one I read, though, was um, uh, A Team of Rivals, which is Oh, yeah, that's uh, a, a Doris Kearns Doris Goodwin. Kearns oh, Goodwin. yeah. You know, it was a portion of that book, a sliver that they... Yeah. that Spielberg used to make the Lincoln movie, yeah, Lincoln, sure. which was a f- yeah. great movie. I mean, I watch a lot of Let's historical movies, and yeah. every once in a while you watch them, and they sort of grate on you. You know, you're like, oh, that's not exactly the way yeah. things went, but they, it was yeah. really well done. Yeah, yeah. So that was a great book. This has uh, been such a pleasure for me. You know, yeah, I, I'm just going to start. I'm going to pick uh, <laughs> Connie's over there <laughs> applauding. I, 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 I really learned a lot. we got a, a standing O from our only. Our <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Um, no, yeah, I think this is a great way uh, to to learn, and and I, gosh, if I could just make it to Manhattanville or to, or yeah, to anytime, to, the doors always open. Yeah, um, and I just I love that you're teaching history, and and I'm going to I'm going to grab you and your wife Virginia. We're going to go to Hamilton. We're going to sit right in the first, okay. first row, and you can and you can sit, sit with a pen and paper. Tell me what's right and what's and, and what, what, you know, what's not. It sounds like you did a, a, a perfect job. I'm sure I have no edits for him. That's for sure. Billy Young, thanks for being with us. Thank you. And I'm sure after that, many of you are going to want to reach out to Bill. But uh, And I love this. He just doesn't do the social media thing. And I'm convinced it's because he doesn't want to take any time away from all the research he's constantly involved in. And we're grateful for that. If you want to get a message to Bill, though, just send me a message through our Facebook page or Twitter. I'll make sure he gets it. Our handles are, once again, at John Tesh, at Connie Selica, and at Gib Gerard. Again, big thank yous from our family to Bill and Virginia Leone for taking time out of their July 4th vacation so we could create this terrific podcast. Please remember to subscribe and to rate our podcast. We would appreciate it. We'll see you next time.